the Buddha said that the essence of the spiritual life is finding freedom from suffering. That's essentially why, why we're doing this. That's why we're here. That's why we embark on our spiritual path more consciously, is to find freedom from suffering. And when we do so much meditation as we did today, um, it's easy to really get focused upon ourselves and my suffering, the pain in my body, my wandering mind, my agitation, restlessness, my sleepiness, my boredom with this whole thing, my fears, all of that. It was in this Tibetan retreat that I attended before I came here, there was such a strong emphasis on at the beginning of each sitting and at the end of each sitting that one dedicate the merit of that meditation to the alleviation of suffering of all beings. So at the beginning of a sitting, you would aspire to deeper mindfulness and understanding and openness of heart, accessing deeper love and compassion. And then after the meditation was finished, dedicating that merit and all of what one experienced to the alleviation of all human suffering, because we're really not separate from anybody else. When we're living in the delusion and the illusion as we're living in it, we think ourselves as being separate, like you're separate from me, I'm separate from you. You have your suffering, your own brand of suffering, I have my own brand of suffering, but actually we're deeply connected here as human beings in that every human being experiences suffering. There isn't one human being on the face of the earth that doesn't experience suffering. So when we meditate, we're not just doing this for ourselves and the alleviation of our own suffering, but the bodhisattva spirit is that in doing this work with ourselves and looking more deeply into our own life and understanding the cause of our own suffering and finding the end to that suffering, that we are contributing to the ending of the suffering of all humankind. And it kind of takes the sense of me doing the meditation, me the doer, me the sufferer, whatever it might be, and it begins to expand it a little bit further. It's not just my body, but it's everybody's body. I mean, it just, it wasn't, it's not just one person in here that was experiencing soreness in their legs, but it was everybody at some point in the day, experienced some soreness in their body. Was it there? Mm-hmm. Everybody experienced some kind of soreness. And one time, um, somebody said something very beautiful to me. This is not my body, it is the body of Christ. This is not my heart, it is the altar. And I did a intensive six-week retreat once with a Burmese teacher, his name is... Uh, Upandita, which is very strict Vipassana practice, Burmese style. Get up at five o'clock in the morning, an hour sitting, an hour walking, an hour sitting, an hour walking, all day until 10 o'clock. You're allowed six hours sleep and very little break in between. And it was really, it was re- they really push and push and push, which can be the Theravadan style, kind of austere type of practice that really pushes you to your limits. And there's a lot of advantage in that, in that you, really, you see what 
you think are your limits and you realize you can go a lot further than that in terms of um, the amount of sitting and walking and just being with oneself, bare attention on oneself and what one is experiencing in the present moment. Um, but in another, in another way, it was sometimes excruciating, you know, the physical pain and, and different mind states that were arising. And I kept saying this over and over to myself in my mind, this is not my body, it is the body of Christ. This is not my heart. It is the, it is the altar. In not denying my body, denying life, denying existence, because the Buddha said that is nihilationism. That is a wrong view to deny the body, the needs of our body, or any aspect of our life. But it's rather that one just doesn't need to look at this as being my body, but realizing it is the same form that every human being has been in that has ever walked the earth. When you think about that, that's a lot of people. It goes way, way, way back in time. How many human beings have walked this earth, have had a As a human being, we have a body, feelings, perceptions, mind, and consciousness. Every human being is wired up this way. Sometimes one of the sense doors is not working. If a person's blind, or if a person's deaf and they can't hear, um, if a person can't, you know, if one of the senses is shut off in some way, then, but generally speaking, all human beings have the same apparatus working within thing that causes suffering is not getting what one wants. One is a desire of something, and that desire is unfulfilled. That creates suffering for ourselves. So if we have a desire, for example, for recognition, for a name, for fame, for money, for power, 
any of that kind of desire, if the desire remains unfulfilled, it's going to create a vacuum in our life, a sense of dissatisfaction and suffering as a result of that. Even if we get what we want, money, fame, power, a beautiful house and car, many things which we feel that will make us happy, there's still the fact that all of these things are impermanent. And there's a fear, underlying fear, behind whatever we get, is that in some way it's going to change, be taken away from us. So there's the fear of losing it. So even if we have a desire and the desire is fulfilled, we get what we want, still because of the grasping and the clinging in the mind, and the fear of holding on to that which we feel is giving us happiness. There is the fear of losing that, and that fear in itself is a form of suffering. It can be that way with many different desires that we have. Desire for connectedness with somebody else, for intimacy, which is a very, very human desire. We all want to feel connected. But the feeling that we have many times is feeling separate, feeling alone, and feeling alienated. Primarily because we feel shielded from our own heart. That each of us has a very tender and beautiful heart. It's the human heart. It's also the source of our divinity that within each of us there is immense love and compassion, a beautiful heart. Yet for different reasons we've needed to shield ourselves from our heart, to protect ourselves. If we allow our heart to be truly open and touched by life, then there's a fear that in some way we're going to be hurt. It's a very common for children who grow up in abused families, for existence, for example, or not even in, in an abusive family, but in families like many of which we grew up in, in which our mother and our father had difficulty loving themselves. They tried their best to love us, but they, because of their own fears, they were close to their own heart, that they really, it was hard for them to fully embrace themselves, to love themselves, until it was very difficult for them to give us the kind of loving and nurturing that, as a child, every child wants to be Sometimes we grew up in families in which there was a lot was not expressed, but you knew that something was wrong, something wasn't right. Or anger that was more externalized, that was more expressed. And with that anger, feeling that we did something wrong, and a need to protect ourselves. And so we build this wall, this shield in front of our own heart to protect ourselves, that very tender, vulnerable place within ourselves. 
that wants to shine forth and that wants to love, that is really inherent in a child. When a child comes into the world, it really, there is so much purity and so much innocence and so much love that is there. But as it moves along in the childhood process and the aging process and the culturalization and schooling and, and religious training and all of that, we become more and more defended and more and more closed off kind of lose that deep connection with our own heart. That we become more withdrawn in fear. And with that, when the people around us are not, when we don't feel that flow of love from them, that we feel we should be feeling, and which we deeply want, and we're not getting it, there's this sense of unworthiness that develops, that I must not be getting this love and this nurturing because there's something wrong with me. It must be my fault. I must be doing something wrong. There must be something wrong with me. So we start getting into all of this judgment of ourselves and all of this self-anger and self-hatred and all of the unworthiness that says, well, if I was really worthy, then I would, then mom and dad would love me. I would be getting this. I would be getting it from my teachers. I would be getting it from the people around me. And if we're lucky, sometimes we run across one or two people in our life who really do have an open heart and are able to love us unconditionally. And that's really a blessing for a child to be able to receive that, to be in contact with that. Because for many, we go a long time without receiving that. And hidden within our own fears is, well, I must not deserve it. deserve it. There must be something wrong with me that I'm not getting it. And so we live in this delusion and illusion of unworthiness and self-judgment and self-anger for a very, very long time. Perhaps our Parents wanted us to be a certain way. They wanted us to be quiet. They wanted us to be, they wanted us to be accepting. They wanted us to be the good one, to go along with how they, they had such a difficult time with their own mind and their own life and managing it that if a, if a child expresses rage and anger, expresses strong emotion, it's too difficult for the parents because it touches the rage and the anger and the fear within themselves. We know that, that when we meet somebody who has stronger emotions, like fear and anger or rage, it tends to touch the same fear and anger and rage in ourselves. So it's too threatening. So the child recognizing this says, okay, then I'll just be the good one, and I'll just be quiet, and I'll push down my anger, and I'll push down my rage. And in doing that, we really close off our hearts. It be, again, it becomes part of that wall in which we hide behind. We hide behind the wall. Behind the wall are these feelings of unworthiness, of self-judgment, of deep rage and anger. And it sits there and sits there and sits there for a very, very, very long time until we become ready to start to explore it, to investigate it, to look at it. And meditation becomes a very effective way of doing that. Sometimes people begin doing it 
through psychotherapy, through counseling before, because it's a little bit easier to do with somebody else who can be there and support you and help to talk you through it a bit. Kind of hold your hand and walk through the process of some of the inner pain that lies within all of us. Then after a while, we, have, we, we get to know ourselves a little bit better. We feel more confident in beginning to look at some of these stronger emotions ourselves through the process of meditation. And meditation can be a wonderful way of doing it because meditation becomes like a fire break where there is a fire raging inside of stronger emotion of the anger, the rage, the fear, the jealousy, whatever it might be. That meditation becomes a fire break, so to speak, where we are able to look at it kind of being on the other side and not get totally consumed and lost in all of it, getting lost in the story, getting lost in the feelings getting lost in the whole drama of it all, but rather through the tool of meditation and skillful means, we're able to kind of look at it and watch it and be aware of it as it's emerging inside of ourselves. So an important part of this process of meditation is allowing what has been hidden deep inside of us in the unconscious for a long time, allowing it to move more and more to the conscious mind allowing it to surface more to our conscious awareness. And that can be a little bit frightening. A little bit frightening. One reason that it's frightening is because of the intensity of it. Because it seems to have so much power. open to it all at once. It's like if this wall is in front of us, this brick wall is in front of us, imagine just taking one brick away at a time. So we take one brick away and we allow some of the light to move in through the wall, to touch some of the pain that is inside of ourselves. Start to feel comfortable with that. Then we take another brick away from the wall. Allow a little bit more light to come in. It's sort of like, you know, adjusting yourself when you're, when you're in a room and somebody opens the door or window or turns the lights on. It takes a while for our eyes to adjust to the light. Well, on the other side of the wall, there's a lot of light. There is the, the light of the eternal. There's the light of God. There is our connectedness with everything. It's very frightening to think that we can open ourselves to all of that at once. We can't do that. It's impossible. But bit by bit, we can do it. Take one brick away, allow some light in. Take another brick away, allow some more light in. And gradually, as we do that, we start to feel more confident and more comfortable in opening to all these different aspects of ourselves, which have been difficult to open to for a long time because of our fear. Fear is such a very strong operative force in human beings. I think that if there, as, if we were to, 
if we if we look at the pain and the suffering that is created on our planet, what would you say was the primary source of the suffering that exists in humanity? The destruction of our environment, the, the, the homicide rate in our country, all of the abuse that happens in our families. The seed of all of that is fear. Fear is at the bottom of a lot of our pain. And it's, I think it's very, I think for us in human life, it's a very, very strong motivating factor. It's something, it's, it's, at the, it's at the root of a lot of our pain. If we look at what causes rage, what causes anger, what causes aversion, it's fear. It's like, the anger, the rage is a symptom. It's a fear that we're going to be hurt in some way. It's a fear that our needs are not going to be met. When there's a fear that our needs are not going to be met, that we're not going to get what we need, it gives rise to selfishness, grasping, greed, the plundering of the earth. When there's a fear that I'm going to be hurt in some way, I'm going to be rejected, that I'm not going to, my needs for love and acceptance and nurturing are not going to be met. It gives rise to a lot of fear. That's when that wall is created in front of us. When the fear arises, that's when the wall goes up. When the fear is there that uh, my needs are not going to be met, I'm not going to be liked, I'm not going to be loved, then as that when that fear arises, that wall goes up and we move into the contracted state. We pull in. And oftentimes, the defense that we use is anger and rage. Anger becomes a way of defending myself. That if I get angry enough, then I'll be able to push and repel everybody, everything away, so that they won't be able to harm me. They won't be able to hurt me. So we use anger, we use rage as a defense out in front of us. That's part of the brick wall. Have you noticed this? You know, at times when you're, you feel threatened by somebody, But our heart remains closed, and we may, remain caught in the cycle of birth and death and rebirth. We, we don't find the freedom from suffering when we always need to defend ourselves and close our heart off like that. And we're constantly coming into situations in which we're being challenged that way. I mean, the world of it can be pretty aggressive, wouldn't you say, sometimes? I mean, people, I mean, this is a special kind of environment where like-minded people are getting together for a weekend in silence and enjoying each other's company and talking about spiritual things, whatever, but it's a little bit different when you go back into your work situations or maybe even back into your families, back into contact with people who 
you know, perceive and live in quite a different way. That's really when the retreat really begins. I mean, this is just a rehearsal. <laughs> you know, you really think, you really think that we're doing something here, you know, something really important in meditating, but it's how do we apply this out into our life in ways. I mean, I was a little bit shocked when, um, uh, I mean, I was, oh, I was used to being around retreat centers and, you know, very spiritual, loving people. And when I moved to North Carolina and um, I got offered this part-time job as a physical education instructor at Duke, and I guess they perceived that there was something different about me. The fact that I was teaching yoga to begin with was very different. They had never had a yoga teacher there before. I was afraid to tell them I was a Buddhist and that I also taught meditation. <laughs> Well, there was this one woman who had been in the phys ed department forever. She just retired this past year. But she, she came up to me after a staff meeting and said, just remember, if you do anything wrong, your name is Mud. Like that. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I didn't do anything. I just got here. You know? But I had a beard and, you know. And I guess I was not as clean-shaven and acceptable appearance as many of them. And so I was a target for this woman's fear and for her judgment. It happened so easily. And for the longest time, I would, my heart was really closed in being around them. You know, I would, there was fear. Every time I would go into a meeting, um, staff meeting with a wrestling coach, you know, and a <laughs> track coach, it was like, what are they going to find out now? You know, I, I remember one time I was... I was uh, making some copies in, in one of the offices, a uh, yoga handout, and the wrestling coach was in a really rough kind of guy, as you can imagine. <laughs> and, and he picks up the, and looks at it, and he goes, ah, yoga, health stuff. He goes, wham! Puts <laughs> it down like it was flipping somebody, you know, in a wrestling match. <laughs> it's a little bit jarring. So somebody who's sensitive, you know, it was, you know, you wanted to connect with this guy on a heart level, right? <laughs> it's like, let's be loving and compassionate to each other. And, that, you know, it's a different realm. So, um, I mean, the tendency in being in that situation is you want to close off. You want to protect yourself because you feel so vulnerable. You feel very, very vulnerable. It's like if I keep my heart open, who knows what will happen? I mean, it's the same for the child. The child, by nature, wants this open heart, wants this love, wants this, it, 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 all it knows is connection. I mean, it's coming from the spirit plane where it's in deep connection with God and with all things. It doesn't know what separation is. If you look into the eyes of a child, you don't see the fear. You see love. You see connection. You see wonder. You see beauty. And, but the learned response. good to be closed. I want to be open, 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 open. And yet there's always the fear that keeps, you know, arising in our minds. You know, but what if, you know, I do remain open, I do open my heart, and I am hurt in all these different ways that we as human beings and living in a very in a fragile human body 
me how easy it is for the human body to get hurt. I, my partner was supposed to come to the retreat, and we're going to have a couple of days vacation before we came here. She fell roller skating, broke her wrist, you know, and it was, uh, she had to have surgery, she was in the hospital, and she couldn't come, she was in so, too much discomfort. The body's just very fragile. I mean, we think we're going to a vacation, meditation retreat. The day before we're supposed to leave, all of this happens. We don't know. I mean, it's very fragile. It's just being, it's, I think it, it takes a lot of courage just to be in human form, just to embark on this path. Because there is so much that is unknown. There's so much doubt that can arise. We don't know what's going to happen. So it takes tremendous courage openness of heart, patience, to continue this process of investigation, of looking, of learning, and allowing our heart to become more and more open to all that is. So supposedly the title of this retreat is Learning to Be with What Is. We see already that sometimes that's not so easy to do. The first day of a retreat is a good dose of, well, it really is not so easy learning to be with what is. There's sometimes a lot of resistance to it, resistance to some of the stronger sensations in the body. For example, and part of that, when we experience that pain in our body, part of that is, again, the fear of being overwhelmed by the sensations. That if I allow myself to remain in this posture for a full 45 minutes, sitting after sitting, and feel this pain in my body, that I'm going to be, that something is going to happen to my body. The fear arises. You know, if John doesn't ring this bell soon, I'll never be able to get out of this posture. You know, they'll have to pick me up and carry me out, you know, strap me on top of my car, drive me home, whatever it might be. It's, it's the same thing. It's the fear that arises, the fear that says that I'm not safe here. We keep meeting this fear over and over and over again. As we do that, the important thing is to create space around the fear. It rise to feelings of aversion anger, ill will, pushing away, not liking. That's when we move into suffering. Physical pain is just physical pain. It's part of the incarnation. All of us experience it at different times in our life to the point of death. But the suffering is our reaction or the way that we relate to pain. That's where we can find the end. We're not going to find the end to pain. We're going to find the end to suffering. Same thing with our feelings and our emotions that arise. When we have an unpleasant feeling that arises, for example, and there is not enough awareness and mindfulness around that unpleasant feeling that arises in our mind, and it gives rise to dislike, and it gives rise to aversion and anger, it's in that that we begin to suffer. It's our relationship. For example, I'll give you a, a good example of this. When I was still a monk, I was um, on the West Coast in Southern California visiting a retreat center. It's Ruth Denison Center. Somebody here said that they went to Ruth Denison Center. 
beautiful desert spot. And I was there for about a month. And after my retreat, I was going to L.A., catch a bus to L.A. And the person who was driving me to the bus station got me there just before the bus was about to leave. Walked on the bus in full monk's robes and shaven head and looked down the aisle and there was only one seat that was open and it was a seat right in front of me. Actually, there were two seats, but there was one very, very large man that was sitting in the middle of the two seats. So since that was the only spot, he moved towards the aisle side and I was on the window seat. And he, he was very large. And he was so big that I was kind of like this against the side of the bus. And I couldn't move unless I asked him to shift position a little bit, because that's how tight we were in the seat. It was extremely hot. There was no air conditioning in this bus. And this man had got on the bus in Texas, and he was on his way to Los Angeles. So I figured, OK, this is going to be an interesting ride, two and a half hours. Um, so we're riding along, and he says to me, why are you dressed this way? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm a Buddhist monk, and this is the way that we dress. And so he whips out this little Bible. He goes, <laughs> and he says, it says here that men should not dress in the likeliness of women. He says, this is sinful. And then he goes on to say, what religion were you brought up in? So I said, well, I was raised as a Christian. But Buddha is my teacher. I'm a Buddhist monk, and I follow teachings of Buddha. I have great respect and love for Christ, but my teacher is Buddha. And he said, well, then you're condemned to hell. You know, so he was laying into me. He was just going on and on. And I'm thinking, you know, we still have a couple more hours to go. And he, he hasn't taken a bath. He smells, you know, and it was getting very uncomfortable. Contact, okay? We talked about this earlier, this, this later on in the morning in that talk. There was the moment of sense consciousness, which is feeling all of this, you know, the smell, the sense of tightness, tension, you know, being judged, everything. And then with that, the feeling that arises with an, with an unpleasant feeling in the mind. So there's a sense perception, the sense consciousness is a perception, feeling hot, you know, feeling irritated, feeling tense. And then the unpleasant feeling arising in the mind as a result of that, with that unpleasant feeling, a sense of discomfort arising, giving rise to a sense of dislike, growing very, very strong, to a sense of anger, you know, wanting to get out of here. And the only way that I thought that I could get out of there was to go back to the bathroom. So I said, will you please excuse me, I need to go to the bathroom. So he shifted a little, I get out of the seat. I start walking down the aisle, and these two young college students jump up and start yelling out, Animal House! Animal House! And there was a movie called Animal House, which was about a fraternity party where they wore togas, Roman togas. <laughs> and I knew nothing about Animal I didn't know what Animal House was. I just thought I was in an insane asylum. I thought I was in a bus loaded with people who were much weirder than I was, even though I was in robes. You know, and 
I don't want So I go into the bathroom, and I'm in the bathroom, and I'm saying, what do, I, what do I do? I can't leave here. I said, as soon as I walk out the bathroom, there are these college students yelling, Animal House. And then I got, there's a Pentecostal minister at the front of the bus. And he was on his way to Los Angeles to preach. That's why he was going to LA. And he was warming up on me. So I'm thinking, there's no escape to this. You know, and there was a little window in the bathroom. And I thought, maybe I can climb out of the window and hold on to the back of the bus until we get to Los Angeles. It was like one of those no exit situations. And then I just stopped and I said, what is going on? Look at all of this. Look at all this fear. Look at all this wanting to run away because we feel uncomfortable, because of the reaction inside. It all begins with a moment of sense perception, of somebody saying something to us, you know, or a smelling something, or seeing something, gives rise to a perception of, you know, this man threatening to me, gives rise to unpleasant feeling, gives rise to that sense of discomfort, uneasiness, gives rise to the sense of dislike, and aversion, and anger, and ill will, and the fear is driving it all. I'm going to be hurt, you know? Something's going to happen to me. I'm not safe in this situation. So that fear becomes the catalyst that just drives us, drives us physically, drives us emotionally, mentally, into more and more into the place of suffering. So the suffering is something that is born out of reactiveness. It's not inherent in the pain itself, but it's something that grows out of the pain. It's something that is, you know, that what a lot of plays into it is our old conditioning, you know, of being judged before, of feeling unsafe. So I had to go back. Fortunately, when I walked out, they didn't yell out Animal House. They just kind of snickered at me as I walked by. <laughs> I go to the front of the bus and I sat down and the minister was on me again. So I just said, well, I don't think that we're going to really agree you know, upon anything at this point. So why don't we just remain silent? See, silence has its virtue. It's a real, can be a good way to shut them up. <laughs> I mean, at that point, I was in too much reactiveness to be able to talk to him further. You know, when we get into that place where we're so kind of caught in our fear and in our pain and in our reactiveness that we can't stay open, can't keep the lines of communication open to be able to continue to communicate. So that was my limits at that time, as we all find what our limits are. And so I said, well, okay, it's better for us to be silent. That way I wouldn't yell at him <laughs> or do something violent. <laughs> like take his Bible away or something. So um, the bus stops in Los Angeles, and people are taking the luggage out of the bottom of the bus. And so I didn't have much luggage, just a begging bowl, a few things like that. So I'm walking away, and he says, oh, wait a minute. He comes over, and he says, no hard feelings, right? I'm going to shake my hand. No hard feelings, right? And so I said, yeah, no hard feelings. Right. You know, but there really was. There was hard feelings. You know, and I felt, hit, I felt attacked. I felt judged by him. It's like he was very judgmental and his judgment touched upon the judgment of myself. You know, that I'm not acceptable. I mean, it's not easy being a Buddhist monk in a Western culture. Try it sometime. 
I mean, it's really, it's really not easy. You feel like a Martian from another planet, you know? It's like, where did he come from, and, you know? And, and if, you're, if there's unworthiness, you know, inside of you, if you're feeling unworthy and judging of yourself, you know, not worthy of love and respect and acceptance and all of that, somebody else's judgment just zings right in there, just feeds upon that. It doesn't take much. I mean, our spouses or our children or friends or family, they know all the soft buttons that are there. If they want to hurt us, it's very easy for them to do it. They just know what to say. Even a young kid, very perceptive like, like this. I mean, because we're all so vulnerable this way. Very, very vulnerable. It's like anger, feeling anger, feeling anger, feeling anger, aversion, 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 feeling judgment, 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 feeling guilt, 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 feeling unworthiness, 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 creating space for it, that it's okay for it to be there, that it's part of our human learning. If we didn't have all of these things, how would we learn? The fear, the pain, the rage, the anger, all of that is the raw material for our learning. If we didn't have all of that, there would be no reason to be here. They are the catalyst for our learning. But there's resistance to it. There's resistance to that learning. There's resistance to the pain. And when there's a resistance to the pain, that's when it becomes suffering. If we can open to things just as they are for what they are, Life is so much easier because we're not resisting it. We're not pushing it away. We're not keeping life, the circumstances of life, trying to control, manipulate, fix everything, and trying to, in order to stay safe, in order to, stay, to be secure because of our fear. Instead, there's much more of this courage of the heart that says, okay, I can open to whatever life offers me in this present moment and transform it into learning and into compassion and into joy. I want to end with a beautiful Sufi quote that says, overcome any bitterness that may have, may have come because you are not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart. Each of us is part of her heart and is therefore endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. You are sharing in the totality of that pain. You're called upon to meet it in joy instead of self-pity. The secret, offer your heart as a vehicle to transform cosmic suffering into joy. You're called upon to meet it in joy instead of self-pity. The secret, offer your heart as a vehicle to transform cosmic suffering 
into joy.